0: you a cough drop all right praise the lord i choke on that okay saints if you would please exodus chapter 37 as we continue to finish up this incredible incredible book that we've been looking at now we're we're at the close and so there's where moses is in a sense just reiterating what he's spoken of but he's as we're looking at it we're looking at it in a different way um, last time we looked at it in its specifics, and what we 're going to do is this time we 're going to be looking at it more in the generic sense. so when we looked at the the whole issue of the actual tabernacle proper, as we looked at you know the the curtains and the boards, we looked at the um, the, the shell, if you will, we looked at the body of Christ, and so we looked at what his body means to us now as we get into the area of the instruments or the items within the sanctuary that where the high priest would go in and they would minister. Now what we're seeing is we're looking at the ministry of Christ. We're looking at what his life means to us. What does the aspects of his life, how does this point out to his life? When we get into chapter 38, we'll be looking at then the, the sacrifice or what does his death mean to us. And so it's a beautiful way to look at this. What does his life mean? What is, what is his his person mean how he came and and you know revealed himself to us what his life his ministry means to us and then what his death his you know his sacrifice means so so it's a beautiful way of looking and just rounding this all up and and pointing to Jesus Christ let's begin to pray and then we'll just jump into our study father we are so grateful for this your word for the revelation of your heart we're so grateful that we know that in the volume of the book Jesus, you would declare it is to do, it is written of you, it's written of you to do his will. And and this is what we see. We, we see that here, the will of the Father being done by you, the Son, and how it brings us life, and then so much more. That as you reveal yourself from item after item, furnishing after furnishing, we want to see you. We want to see you in the fullness and, and really what it means to us. And then as we recognize what you've done, we recognize who you are, Father. May it just cause us to be in awe even more to the, the perfect revelation of your word, to the perfect understanding that there is nothing that is out of place, nothing that is random. Everything is perfect. And everything points to you, Jesus. So continue to knit our hearts to you. Truly give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, well, last week I talked to you guys about going through at least the, the first chapter, even into the second chapter, um, 37 to 38. We're gonna be dealing with 37 this evening. And next week we'll, we'll tackle chapter 38. And as we're looking at this, because you guys have already read ahead, I'm just gonna take it in the sections that is there. What we're gonna be doing as we look into chapter 37, it begins with the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. And, and that's the first furnishing that, that here um, in chapter 37, it's spoken of. And after it speaks of the, the Ark of the Covenant, there in the first nine verses, then in verses 10 through 16, he then moves inside, you know, on the outside of the, the veil, but he moves to that place of ministering and he goes to the table of showbread. After the table of showbread, he then moves to the other side, he moves to the south side, and we then look at the, the golden lampstand. We looked at the menorah, or we will look at the menorah. And then, lastly, when we get to verse 25, as we close up the chapter, we'll look at the altar of incense. Now, within these furnishings of the tabernacle, we looked at one passage um, there last week. We we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, verse seven, and, and it's just this beautiful understanding where the author of Hebrews makes this statement, and of course, we quote it many, many times. He simply says, you know, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. And so we understand that, that everything, if you're ever curious to what scripture is trying to teach us, mm-hmm. just put Jesus in it. And you're probably going to have a pretty good understanding of what it is. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, his light illuminates all of the Old Testament, all of what what is beginning to happen. We understand that, that Jesus, where it says in, in John that the word became flesh, Jesus became incarnate and he dwelt among us, the term actually means tabernacle among us. And so it's just this beautiful understanding. But it is written of him, but it says this, to do your will. You understand that Jesus did nothing on his own. Everything that he did was according to a very clear design to really bring us to a saving knowledge of this incredible gospel of grace, this gospel of love. Um, One other passage that I wanted to share with you this evening Just want to add to you to your understanding when it comes to this this portion of Hebrews. (coughs) In Hebrews chapter 8, and what I want to do is I want to read to you the first six verses that are within this this passage. And I want to add to you a little bit of what we're we're talking about because as we come into this tabernacle, it it declares this Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things that we're saying. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. This is huge. There's a ministry that took place through the person of Jesus Christ who he declared himself to be and as he walks these things through. One of the things that we're gonna see this evening and and I don't know if you've ever caught this on your own, but each one of these instances these, these furnishings literally step by step by step go through the I am statements. And, and it's a beautiful thing where it doesn't shift around. You're like, this is what it is. This is what it is. And it's, it's perfectly, why did Jesus, you know, open up and simply say, first of all, I'm, I'm the bread of life. Why did he say next? You know, I'm the light of the world. Why, why did he, he do the showbread first? Why did he do the menorah? Why did he have to go in that order? But yet he does this perfectly. And so we understand as he goes, he's the minister of the sanctuary. It is his life through his person, which is of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So here, Moses and the children of Israel are putting this according to the very plan that God had designed. But understand, there's a true tabernacle. God is the one who built this, not man. And it says here, verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also has something to offer. So it talks about now the ministry. We, we see here that the priest, they give the gifts, they give the sacrifice, they do a ministry. And that's what we're seeing here. What is the ministry of the life of Christ? Then we're gonna see, you know, when we get into the next chapter, what is that, that the, how his death affects us? What is the ministry of his death? How is the sacrifice, do we look at that? But as he comes, it says that he would also have something to offer. Verse 4, for if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. So he can't give it according to the law, but this is what happens. Verse 5, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, he said... See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, that is Jesus Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So we see that everything that Christ does, everything in his life, is a not a shadow, not a type, but a reality. And so with this amazing as as these these furnishings are, each one of these items are, the reality of the ministry of Christ is so much greater. And so you you see something that is glorious and then you have something that is exponentially more glorious when you look at the person, the work of Jesus Christ. As we're seeing this, I want to share with you one passage here in in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. And it makes this statement where the the, the Lord is is, is speaking and it it declares this. He said, let them, Exodus 25 verse eight, make me a sanctuary. Then he says this, that I may dwell among them. This is a beautiful, beautiful statement. The reason why God wants to do this is he wants to come and he wants to be a part of their journey. He wants to be a part of their lives. He's going to be the focal point of what they're worshiping and then they realize that the reason that that you are the reason we live and exist and, and we have our being it's in you and it's only when we're wrapped around you and centered on you that life has its meaning outside of that it just becomes emptiness remember the, the preacher when he wrote ecclesiastes he did all these things and he said oh it was fun in the pursuit By the time i got to the end it was just vanity it was emptiness And so as as we look to this, I think it's important to to gravitate really to what he's about to say. Now, before we jump into our text here in in chapter 37, where we're going to be looking at the ark, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and this altar of incense, I want to just jump to chapter 40 for just a second and, and give you an idea of kind of what we're about to look at and how we're about to see things in chapter 40. Of course, we'll be looking at this in a a couple of months. I'm just kidding, a couple of weeks. Um, Where as we look at this, I want you to turn to verse 18. Just look at verse 18 of Exodus 40 for just a second. And it it makes this statement. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put on its bars, raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and he put the covering of the tent on top of it. And then notice what it says as the Lord had commanded Moses. You understand, this isn't a random thing. Everything he does, he does it specifically. Now, after he erects the, the actual tabernacle, the physical tabernacle, that which we looked at last week, notice what he does. Verse 20, he then takes the testimony. He takes the Ark of the Covenant And the mercy seat, he takes the testimony. The very next thing we're gonna look at, he took the testimony, put it into the ark, inserted its poles with the rings of the ark, and he put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle. He hung up the veil and the covering, positioned the ark of the the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. So understand, it goes to building the construction, what we looked at last week. Now, the first thing he does is he looks at the ark, which is what we're gonna be looking at first and foremost. And then it says here, directly after that, it says in verse 22, he put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now he does the table of showbread. It's the second thing we're gonna be looking at. But you have to understand that what we're looking at here is as God commanded, as God commanded, as God commanded. After the table of showbread, I guess you could probably already guess what's gonna happen next. In verse 24, he put the lampstand of the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And in verse 26, he put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil and he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord commanded Moses. And then next week, the screens. Next week, we see what happens with with the court and everything else. But I think it's important to note here that what Moses begins to do in the very steps that he begins to make is exactly what God is declaring here today. In this chapter, he's gonna very simply, as we look to here in, in, in chapter 37, He's Now the tabernacle is erected, the physical part, but there's still the work that needs to go inside the tabernacle. And there's a passage I want you to jot down. You're probably familiar with it as I begin to read it. You're going to know it. But in Psalm 84, the first two verses, he makes the statement. He says, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts, My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. This is so incredible to see that this tabernacle is. I long for this fellowship. And guess what? We look at Jesus Christ, who is tabernacled among us, and guess what? Our hearts in Christ, we long for the fellowship. Mankind has always wanted to fellowship with God. And so our heart and our flesh cry out, oh God, that you would hear me. Oh God, that you would be with me. Oh God, that you would allow me to experience you. And he says, I'm gonna allow you through these things, through the ministry of my life, you can experience me. As we look to this, it simply opens up in chapter 37, verse one. Then Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length a cubit and a half its width, a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in its four corners. Two rings on one side, two rings on the other side of it. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings and at the sides of the ark to bear the ark. And he also made the mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits was its length, the cubit and a half its width. And he made two cherubim of beaten gold and he made them in one piece at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end on this side and another cherub at the other end on that side. And he made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim spread out their wings above and they covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another and the faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Now, we've already looked at this in depth. And so as we went there, you guys know that that portion in Exodus 25 where we actually looked at it in detail. So I don't want to look at it in detail, but I do want to look at it as far as how can we see this dwelling place this place where the very glory of God is how do we see that in Jesus Christ in Exodus 25 two verses I want to share with you I want to read verses 21 and verse 22 because this is the key to where the glory of God is revealed in Exodus chapter 25 beginning in verse 21 it says you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. So keep in mind, there's this box. We understand that's the ark of the covenant. Inside, he sets the law. And what does he do? He covers the law with pure gold, the the nature of deity. And they call that the mercy seat. The law is covered with mercy. Mercy. And, and I love the fact because he says in verse 22 of Exodus 25, it says, and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim, which are on the Ark of the Testimony about everything that I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. This is where I'm gonna share my heart. This is where I'm gonna share who I am. So what's amazing is this, that the I am, the one that spoke to Moses through the burning bush, that I am the very I am is going to meet with them, Yahweh, Jehovah is going to meet with them and 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 so amazingly is is when Moses can say, "Who do I say? sent me?" God said, "Well, tell him I am that I am sent you and of course, we looked at that when we were there in Exodus three, but um, when we when we noted that we noted that there's a passage in the Amplified version that really speaks well of the intent of the passage, and when God says I am that I am has sent you, He says, "Tell him I am that I am, and I will be what I will be." That's what the Amplified declares, and I love that because the inference is this: that God will become whatever we need Him to become to draw closer to him. Now, understand the caveat, he just says to become whatever we want him to become. Because sometimes we want this, we want that. God, I need you to do this, but it draws us away. What God becomes is whatever he needs to become to draw us closer to him. And so amazingly, we're gonna see that God becomes what? The glory on the mercy seat. God becomes this table of showbread. He becomes the bread of life. He becomes the light of the world. He becomes this incense altar. He becomes the mediator, the intercessor. And so amazingly, as we look at that, all these furnishings are literally declaring, I am that I am. He becomes whatever we need him to become so that we can draw closer to him. And so I want you to recognize that what God does is this. He doesn't meet them according to the law. The law has been covered by mercy. The, the mercy seat. And so it's important to recognize the law is covered by mercy. Remember that passage in James 2.13, it says, mercy triumphs over just, justice. And it, it's so important to recognize that the mercy triumphs over the judgment. There's We want to judge, but God says mercy's greater. Mercy's greater. There's an old adage in Calvary Chapel, I don't know where it fell on. I heard it first with Chuck Smith. And, and it's been a, a huge point in my ministry, so much so that, we were having a discussion with some of the leadership the other day, and one of the people brought it up to me. They said, Don't you always say that if you're gonna err, try to err on the side of grace. Like, I would rather do that. You err on the side of grace, there's you know, less repenting to do, less damage that is done. So if you're gonna find an error, I think it's really good, err on the side of grace. But what we see is this that the the, the law according to, to John one seventeen, was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the important thing of noting who Jesus is and what Jesus is. And, and so as we, we recognize this whole area of here, God says, I'm gonna meet with you, not through the law, but the law is gonna be covered and I'm gonna meet with you in mercy. This to me is so beautiful. Two passages that I want to share with you, both found in the gospel of John. You don't have to turn there, but just John. As a matter of fact, you may want to put a marker in John. So maybe you do want to turn there because we're going to reference John a couple times here as we look at the I am statements as they lead to the the furnishings that we're looking at here. But I want you to first see in John chapter one, verse 16. We understand there's a truth to this where he says this. For of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. You understand that just in case the grace isn't enough, he adds on another grace. This is is the fullness of God is grace and then more grace. When we look to that truth, when we look to that understanding, it should blow our minds. And as we look to hear the Lord revealing himself, the glory where he meets above that mercy seat, John 1.14 says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We experienced the very glory of God, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amazing thing, the very kabod, the very weightiness, the very glory of God meets in Mercy. And that's important to recognize that Jesus Christ is what? He is that mercy. He is that grace. His work is, is one to say, listen, i come to take what was your due. I've taken that. So you're not going to, to get what is your due. But then the grace of Jesus Christ goes beyond mercy because grace is getting what you don't deserve. And, and, and so mercy is not getting what you do, which Jesus took it away. But grace is getting what you don't, which is what? intimacy with God, an incredible relationship with our creator. This is what he establishes for us. So I think it's so important that as soon as we look to the very first of the furnishings, he goes inside the veil and he talks about the ark and he talks about the mercy seat. And of course, that's where God meets. And and, and it it just pictures Jesus so perfectly. He's the very glory of God incarnate. And he is the epitome of of the mercy seat, he is where the the angels just look at what he's done. Look at this mercy of God that he has upon sinful men, and they're in awe of it. That's why these cherubim are looking down. And saying, this is incredible. The law has been covered, mercy has been manifested, and the glory of God is manifested in the mercy. And so, I love the fact that that's the first of the furnishings. And then he comes to this, and it makes a statement in verse 10. He made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, the cubit was its width, the cubit and a half, its height. He overlaid it with pure gold, and he made a molding of gold all around it. He also made a frame of a hand all around it. He made the molding of gold for the frame all around it. He cast its four rings of gold and he put the rings on the four corners that were at its four legs. The rings were close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table, overlaid them with gold. And he made pure gold utensils, which were on the table, its dishes, its cups, its bowls, and its pitchers for pouring. Now, again, in the same way as we looked at the Ark of the Covenant, in its detail, as we were in Exodus 25, we also looked at the table of showbread in its detail. If you want to go through each of the, the measurements again, i go back to that one because each each one of these um, furnishings was its own message. And so we dealt with it very specifically. But like I said, we want to look at it a little bit um, generically here. But I want you to note that as we were looking at here, this table, Remember when we were there in, in Exodus chapter 40 and we made a note of something and I want to just read it to you one more time because when it comes to this table of showbread, it says in Exodus 40, he put the table in the tabernacle and meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. So understand that when you enter the tabernacle proper itself, what happens is this, you come in from the east and that's the front of the tabernacle. You you pass the, 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 the bronze altar, you pass the laver, and then you come into the door. When you come into the door, the very first thing that you do is if you look to the right, now amazingly is this, the right in scripture is what? The symbol of strength. They are right hand, you know. And I'm not saying that the lefties are wrong, I'm just saying that more people are writings, you know? So, so when, when you deal with that right in the scripture is like that symbol of strength. When you come into this, I think it's so beautiful. The first thing you do is you, you look to the side of strength. You're coming in and, and I want you to recognize another truth to this, that we're gonna see it more in detail, but this bread itself doesn't illuminate itself. The light on the other side is what illuminates this. The altar of incense doesn't illuminate itself, it's the light, so so understand this this is necessary, it needs to be understood that it doesn't have its own illumination, but something else develops it, something else shines on it, something else shows how amazing it is. And so as we look to this, it's on the right side of strength, so when you're going in, the eyes go, you know, here, here's the right, this is this is that side. And, and it immediately goes to the table of showbread. As you look to it, the, the amazing thing is the, the what we recognize is, of course, Jesus is our life source. If you're familiar with that passage, there in the Gospel of John, um, the very first time that Jesus uses the I Am statements, and of course, as you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you may know that he uses seven I am statements. He says, I'm the bread, I'm the light, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and of course, I'm the vine. And so he goes through those points. But the first one that he uses in John 6, 35, where he says, I am the bread. And so what happens is this. Jesus has been speaking to the people. And as he's speaking to the people, something interesting begins to happen. I want to start up back in verse 22 because it says this, the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw there was no boat there except the one which his disciples had had entered, that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. However, the other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks, so after the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you come from? And, and Jesus answered and says this, verse 26, most assuredly, the term is verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. But he says, most assuredly, I say to you, you, did, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. So much of the pursuit is this, temporary fillness, temporary fully. You know, I wanna, I wanna be just a temporary here where we're just kind of feed me right now. And, 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 and I, I think it's, it's so important, the very first of the furnishings that are here in that area of ministry is the first of the I am statements. And of course, the first one that he mentions is the first in the Gospel of John. He's the very glory of God revealed. As we look to the first of the I am statements, it's the first of the ministering. Keep in mind, the priest always went into the first place ministering, moving, (coughs) not sitting. And so as we look to that, he begins to say that, that he is this bread of life. Well, what happens is people are there and they want this, temporary fix. They want a temporary filling. And Jesus says, look at how much energy you put in to the next meal. And keep in mind, just yesterday, you guys ate till you were full. And now you're coming after me again. Look at how much energy you're putting in for something that's temporary. He says this, you need to put in that kind of energy to that which is eternal. And then we, we, we do this, and I think it's so important that we, as Christians, sometimes we look to the temporary blessings of God, and I think he wants to show us the more permanent things that he has. Now, when it comes to the area of Jesus, when it comes to this area of the, that he is the, the bread of life, one of the things that we see, just jot this down if you're a note-taker, in John chapter one, verse four, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the source of life. In John 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So he says, you can have something more permanent. And then in John 6, 51, he makes a statement. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now he, he points out to say, this is what it's all about. This is my life. I'm giving to you the very life of who I am. And so we, we recognize, Jesus, you are life. And I think it's important to see that when it comes to you know this, this chapter, that he uses the showbread first and foremost. And of course, that bread is that... Um, if you're familiar with that passage in Exodus chapter 25, let me read just a, a couple of verses to you. In verse 23, it says, you're also going to make this table of acacia wood, two cubits this length, a cubit and a half, and you're going lay it with pure gold. So we're, we're dealing with the table of showbread here. But in verse 30 of Exodus 25, he makes this statement, you shall set the showbread on the tabernacle before me always. This bread is always going to be before me. It's never not gonna be before me. You're gonna replace it periodically, but it's always gonna be before me. And and so I want you to understand that the the, the show bread, the, the term in the Hebrew literally means it's the bread of presence. And I find that unique because we think that the, each one of them represents the 12 tribes, and I do agree they represent the 12 tribes, but I do agree that what? If Jesus is the bread of life, it's him in each of the 12 tribes. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is where it all boils down to. And so we, we recognize that it is the, the the table of presence. It's the bread of presence. There's a passage in Leviticus chapter 24, a couple of verses I want to read to you just so you can kind of see where the um, the, the heart of this this goes. But on the table of showbread, they needed to actually put this bread which Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. In Leviticus 24, beginning in verses five through nine, he makes a statement, you shall take fine flour, bake 12 cakes with it, two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, you shall set them in rows of six, six in a, in a row on a pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each row that it may be on the bread for a memorial and offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath, every time there's a new rest. He says this, he shall set it in order before the Lord. When you're resting, it's in Christ. And I think it's important to note this. Every single time, the rest is new. The rest is fresh. And, and so what he does is this. Every Sabbath, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel as an everlasting covenant. So the fine flour, the children of Israel give to the priest so they can make the showbread so it's the people who give to the priests. The priests make it into this representation of each of the 12 tribes, but we recognize what? It's Jesus in the individuals, Jesus in the tribes. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is where it's so amazing. And then it says in verse nine, that it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. So when the week old bread is done, then what do you do with the old bread? Well, because it's holy, because it's holy, you cannot just discard it. What you have to do is, is only Aaron and his sons, they're not passing out to the people, only Aaron and his sons shall eat it in a holy place for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. They need to what? Communion. I need to partake of you. I need to partake of this. I need to partake of this. And it's so amazing that we are now what? We're this kingdom of priests. We are what God had always intended. But you understand that it's the priest. It's those who are close. It's those who are ministering. They're able to partake of this bread And the same thing is true, I think, in the church, that we who are ministering, we who are are serving in sincerity, that we're able to partake of the life of Christ and say, this is what the ministry is. It's not me, it's Christ in me. That without him, I can do nothing, but with him, all things are possible. And so it's an amazing thing seeing here this table of showbread. as we look to this, we saw initially when Jesus gave that statement that He was the bread of life. Everyone was seeking this, this, you know, um, a temporary fulfillment of everything that was there. And so, when when Jesus was speaking to the crowd, and I want to share with you another portion from that passage of John chapter six, Jesus makes this statement, and it's, it's a key to understanding what's happening. In John six, verse 47, Jesus is gonna make this statement. Most assuredly, I say that he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. You believe you have life. I'm this bread, I'm, I'm, I'm that source of your life. Your father's ate manna in the wilderness, they're dead. You understand, it's just not that that physical bread that they were pursuing so with so much abandon and so much energy. He says, you're doing this for something that's so temporary. Put in the energy to that which is eternal. And I think it's so important to really sometimes take a look at our lives and says, how much energy do I expel into that which is temporary? And it's gonna not really fill me up. Tomorrow, it's gonna be empty. And it's the same thing that the preacher with the Ecclesiastes was saying, I did this and it kind of pursued me and it kind of filled me up, but then it was empty when it was done. That's the same thing with this physical needs that we look for the temporary. And Jesus is like, come to the permanence. And he says, of course, in verse um, 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the man of the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. So the same way as manna came down from heaven and they could partake of that and have life every day, Jesus said, I came down from heaven, you can partake of me every day. And every time you partake of me, guess what happens? You have life and you have a richer life and a more abundant life. And then he says this in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven if anyone eats this bread partakes of me, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus is saying, listen guys, I'm the life source. I am this life source. I'm the one that, that as, he, as he talks about the bread, I was kind of was reminded just this afternoon that bread is what? It's wheat. It's wheat that has been what? Well, Jesus makes this statement and I want to share it with you because it kind of ministered to my heart this afternoon. And, and it says this in John chapter 12, verse 23 and verse 24. Jesus answered and said, the hours come that the son of man should be glorified. Talks about his glory. And then he says this in verse 24, most assuredly, I say, to unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and, and dies. Do you understand I'm a grain of wheat and I'm dead. I fall into this ground, I die. And then, because of that, it says this it falls into the ground and dies. If it remains, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Mm. If Jesus wouldn't have died, we could have not been a part of this life. Mm -hmm. And it's so amazing to look and see what it is that he makes this declaration where he talks about the bread. He talks about what his ministry is. And, and it's just such a beautiful, beautiful passage when, when everything is all boiled down to it. One other passage I just wanna share with you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, it makes this statement, for we though many, in other words, 12 tribes each, person within the, the children of Israel would give the, the flower to the priest. Each tribe would be represented. But it says this in, in 1 Corinthians ten seventeen. for we though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. This is amazing. We're all, we're all separate, but yet we're all knit and united into the ministry of Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room can say one thing, Jesus Christ is my life source. Mm -hmm. He is the source of my joy, he's the source of my peace, he's the source of everything that I need. Every one of us being individuals are part of that loaf. And it's just this this beautiful understanding of, of what we begin to see. And I love how the first of the I am statements is, I am this bread of life. Well, the second one is this, verse 17. As we look to the, now the the south side, as we look to the left, that which is illuminating everything. In verse 17, it says, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. Of hammered work, he made the lampstand, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, its flowers were the same piece. All one piece, hammered gold. Six branches came out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand on one, three branches on the of the lampstand on the other side. So we know it had seven branches. These are, these are necessary things to grasp. That you have this seven-branched candlestick um, made of pure gold, beaten gold. Verse 19, there were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch with ornamental knob and a flower. And the three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so... For the six branches coming out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four bowls made like almond blossoms with each ornamental knob and flower. And there was a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches extending from it. Their knobs and their branches were of one piece. It was all, all of it was one hammered piece of pure gold. And he made its seven lamps, its wick trimmers, and its trays of pure gold, a talent of pure gold. He made it with all its utensils. Now, of course, we, we discussed this when we were there earlier in Exodus 25. We talked about the lampstand in detail. So if you want details, go back to that. But we're looking to what? The second of the I M statements. Jesus said what? I'm glad of the world. And I think it's important that what happens is that this is the the, the second one. Now, when Jesus had made that statement, I am the light of the world. I want you to understand that there are are two places in which that statement is made. The very first time that he makes that statement is in John 8, verse 12. This is right after the woman who was caught in an act of adultery. and, And where he just said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And everyone else has walked away. There's only him and the woman. And then Jesus spoke to them again as crowds now come back and wondering what's happened. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. He says, you won't be in darkness. You won't be not understanding. You're gonna fully understand everything that I'm doing. So we see the first time he mentions this is in this incredible grace directly after he doesn't judge a woman who was caught in adultery in the very act. The next time he makes the statement is found in the Gospel of John at chapter nine. And in, in John chapter nine, we see there was this man who was blind from birth a man who had never seen ever. All this man had ever understood is what? Darkness. And as Jesus saw him, the disciples said, who sinned this man? And he goes, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works of him who sent me, the the, the glory of God, the works of God should be revealed to him. And I must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. And the night is coming where no one can work, but as long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. It's amazing that Jesus here in talking about this is really saying, I'm the illumination of all things. Here's a man that has been born in darkness. And of course, we are spiritually born in spiritual darkness. The carnal man can't discern the things of the spirit, but Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a path. I want to share with you in the, the, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, when Jesus makes the statement Or John makes a statement about Jesus in verse four. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then it says this in verse eight. He, that is the man who was sent from God, who was John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And then he says this, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. All of us are born in spiritual darkness. All of us are like the man, we've been born blind. And he is the one who is the one that says, I'm going to give you light. Amazingly, what we see this, this lampstand is the only illumination in the tabernacle that the priest can work by. It is only this that illuminates the beauty of the showbread. It's only this that illuminates the beauty of the altar of incense. This light gives life to everything. There are so many things in our lives that we need to do what? I need his light to shine on me, to reveal him, to reveal who he is. They could not see the beauty of the table of showbread if it wasn't for this light shining on that table of showbread. Understand that we can't understand the fullness of all the ministry of Jesus Christ if it's not his light, him illuminating it through the work of the spirit and his word. When we look to this word, there are a lot of people that are reading this word and they're scratching their yarmulkes trying to figure out, I don't understand anything that this is saying. And we look at it and we're just in awe. People look and say, all right, well, all right, he's got a covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, he's got the showbread, he's got the lampstand, he's got the altar of incense, big deal. And like, you don't understand. These are the exact order of the I am statements. When he says, here's the table of showbread, he is the bread of life, he is that source. When he says he's the, the lampstand, he is the light of the world and he gives light to that which never has seen light. The light comes through grace, being bestowed upon those that do not deserve it. It's amazing to see how this life is portrayed. And so we we recognize that without light, there is only darkness. There is only darkness. And that would be the nature of what's inside the tabernacle. All the ministry could not take place unless it was what? For that lampstand. And within that lampstand, it's a beautiful thing that it has the seven branches. And then, of course, we looked at it in detail, but I, I wanna focus on one thing, that the seven in scripture is that number of completion. It's just, it, that's what it is. When you have seven days it's a complete week, you start over again. In Revelation, there's seven, 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 seven all those things, but there's seven stamps on this. Remember in creation, understand, the creation wasn't completed. It wasn't fully, fully done until the seventh day. You had to have rest. Then creation was accomplished. You you could have six days of work and it's not done yet. You have to have the seventh day. The completion of all things is what? It's the rest. And this is what we begin to see. That you can have light and light and light and light, but the light is seven, seven branches. It's a rest. You, you rest in his illumination. You rest in his work. And so it's just this beautiful thing when we look to the reality of what these furnishings are. A passage I want you to jot down found in Exodus chapter 27, two verses to look at. I want to read to you verses 20 and verse 21. And it says this, Because we have the menorah, because we have the light, um, it, it makes a statement that in Exodus 27 verse 20, you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Now understand, again, like the showbread, it's the children of Israel that bring in these olives. And the the way that happens is this, they're gonna bring in this, that they bring in the pure oil of pressed olives. If you're familiar with how olives are are pressed, first and foremost, they're ground up. They just kind of grind them up and and then they they put them in bags. And and what they do is this, they put the bags in what is known as an olive press. And they then put a weight over it and they, they crank this weight down and it presses and presses and presses on these olives. Uniquely, what happens is this, that oil from the first pressing when you have a black olive, the oil is red. It, it almost looks crimson. And then what happens is, as it sets, the, 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 the darker oil sits to the bottom, the, the cleaner oil, the more pure oil raises to the top. And I love the fact of the pressing of the olives. Of course, you know that Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you don't know this, Gethsemane means the olive press. He was in the the garden of the All Oppressed. He was pressed, and as he was there, he sweat what? Great drops of blood. And you see the purity of what it is. Now, I want you to understand the children of Israel are the ones that bring this. And then it says this, that this light is outside the veil. In other words, you have the veil that goes to the Holy of Holies. This is before that. And it says this, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. Now, some think that it's a 12 hour duty that they do it from the evening to the morning. There's another translation that they do, they do it in the morning, in the evening and in the morning. In other words, twice a day they go. And the Talmud makes that clear that that they do it twice a day. They do it once in the evening, once in the morning. What they do is they make sure they fill up the bowls with pure oil. And then they, they take each one of those wicks, they take that which was already used. If you've never known on a candle, eventually the candle has a little black on it. And so what they do is they take that little wick and they clear off the black. They make it all brand new, fresh, and then they light it again. And so, but you have six that are lit and then the seventh comes on and six. <coughs> six that are lit and the seventh come on and it's a beautiful understanding that it's pure oil. It's, it's absolute with no defilement and of course, we recognize what well, we recognize as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings light. The Holy Spirit brings life. And in all honesty, the Holy Spirit brings illumination to the Word. You can study and study and study, and get nothing out of it until the Holy Spirit opens your heart and opens your mind to say, "Oh, this is amazing. I can give this message to another group of people, and they would. I could give the exact same message, and they would not see the tie-ins." You guys look to this and go, oh my goodness, this is amazing. This is so incredible. I see Christ, I see Christ, but it's the spirit of God who's touching your hearts and touching your lives to recognize how this is done. So I do want you to understand that where this veil is, is they are going to do it every single day. They are going to minister to these, add the oil to the the, the bowls and they're going to redo the wicks. And so they do it once in the morning once in the evening, and to me, it's like, Lord, only you would go and say, you know what, I can have light in the morning when I do my devotions, and I can have light in the evening before I go to bed as I I look to your word to illuminate me. This is huge, and if you as a Christian, if you make this a practice of your life, I can tell you one thing. I'm not going to demand that you do it. I'm not going to say that you have to do it, but I'm going to tell you this, that if you do do it, you are going to be so incredibly, richly blessed. You're going to see the word of God illuminated and illuminated. And and it's amazing. There's a lot of times that I will be reading a passage and I will literally have a dream of me in a park somewhere, standing on a bench or standing on on a box and I'm preaching this word to the people who are walking by and I love those dreams. It's just incredible to see God, this is, this is your word. And I think that if you choose to do it like this as a perpetual statute forever, generation after generation, teach the, the kids to say, get into the word in the morning, let's get into the word at night, let's let's make sure that the last thing that we, we go is, is God, you're in my mind and in my heart the um the first thing you are is in the mor- in the morning spurgeon actually has a devotional called morning and evening and it's a it's a beautiful devotional um but he sets it up so you can do one in the morning one in the evening and it, it's 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 from this passage that it was inspired of God for him to say Let, let's put this down and let's draw people um so you can do it as a devotional you can do it in your word but I think it's just so amazing to to say, you know what, I'm gonna gonna read. Um, Sometimes I do Old Testament in the morning and I do New Testament in the evenings and it just really helps keep a balance and the two just kind of open up. But it's just a, a glorious thing that he is the light and he illuminates his word, he illuminates his heart, he illuminates these things. And then lastly, we see this, the altar of incense. Verse 25, he made the incense altar of acacia wood Its length was a cubit, its width was a cubit. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. And he overlaid it with pure gold, its tops, its sides all around its horns. He also made for the molding of gold all around it. And he made two rings of gold for it under its moldings and by its two corners on both sides as holders for the poles with which to bear it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and he overlaid them with gold. He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of a perfumer right next to the veil. Understand that this is right next to the veil. This is where the priests would, um, if you're familiar with Zechariah, as he would go and he was lifting up the prayers of the people. And what they would do is they would put in this incense and the smoke would rise and it was a way of saying all the people who were outside praying you were putting their prayers on the altar as the smoke rose the prayers went to God and you would come out and you would say he's heard and you would you come out and say your prayers are in heaven the crazy thing is Zechariah came out and didn't say a word that's notable <laughs> you know and and so because of his unbelief he couldn't speak and he's like i don't know how do you how do you sign that you know and so what happens is this, it's next to the veil, it's closest to the mercy seat, and the, 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 the understanding of this is this, it's intercession. The priests are taking the prayers of the people and they're the intercessors, they place it on the altar and it goes up to God. Intercession, if you're familiar with the concept, allows, it's, it's two things biblically. Intercession is one allowing access or entering in. And the other thing about intercession is this, it is it, about protection. That I'm watching over you, I'm protecting you. And out of all the things so amazingly, is after Jesus said that I'm the bread of life, I am the light of the world, he then said what? I'm the door, I'm your access. And then he would go on and says, "And I'm the good shepherd, I'm the one that protects you. It's so amazing that the next two that we see here, the next two of the I am statements perfectly begin to open up our heart as what this altar of incense is. How he says, I am the protection. I am the one that's gonna watch over you. There's that passage in John chapter 10 where Jesus does make the statement. Let me read it to you beginning in verse one. Most assuredly, I say to you that he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief or a robber. So he talks about this entering in. And he says, listen, there are some who, if you don't come through the door, you're not entering in, you're not legit. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own by name and he leads him out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. And because they didn't understand, notice what Jesus said. Verse seven, then Jesus said to them again, Moses, shall I say, I am the door of the sheep. I'm your access. If you do not come by me, you are not legit. If you do not come through me, you aren't there. And it's just beautiful thing to see that, that here the Lord is, is trying to get us to say that in this intercession, you can enter in. Your prayers are being heard. God can receive. And this is a beautiful thing where now we don't have to stand on the outside Jesus would go on to say, listen, you don't have to have me intercede for you because the Father loves you. I don't have to do this. The Father himself loves you. There's a word that God wants to just shower his love because of what I've done. You can have access come boldly to the throne of grace that I have created as I've broken through this veil. And the other thing that we see is this in verse 10 and 11 of John 10 he makes that second statement. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill and to destroy. i come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Protection and entering in. And I am fascinated by how only God in his spirit would allow Jesus to say the I am statements in direct correlation to how Moses would Declare it here in our passage, and how Moses would set it up in Exodus 40. Everything according to a purpose, everything according to a design. And I think it's important for us because what? Find your life in Christ. Let Him illuminate the paths that you need to walk. And as He does, recognize that it's still Him that you're depending upon. You're the one that ever lives to make intercession for me. You're the one that, that I, I come through and that I stay on. And, and when, I, when I'm when i in you, there's this safety, there's this protection. But when I'm outside of you, guess what? All kinds of things can happen. But when I'm with you, you have me covered. Which is a beautiful passage as we look to the incredible <laughs> ministry of the life of Christ as he is His life source is our life source. His life is our path that illuminates our path. He is the door. He is the protection. That's his life. That's his ministry. Next week, we look at his death and what his death brings to us. And and it's even more powerful. So it just keeps amping up and I just get more and more excited. So hopefully I'll be less froggy when, when next week comes, so just keep that in prayer, but let's give this before the Lord. Father, we're so grateful for this, your word, this, your heart. We were blown away last week as we looked to your body mm-hmm. to see how that was represented and what it means for us, that God, you would come and become a man. You would pay the price. God would die for our sins. God would shed his blood. Of course, it's perfect. But on top of that, your life was also a place for us to have ministry. That, that as we as we tap into you, our life source, then we truly experience life. As we look to you as our light, then we know the path we should walk. As we, as we come through you, only through you, we know that there is no other path, no other access. And so we're so grateful, Jesus, that you have made a way for us to come before the Father. And we want to be illuminated in the morning, in the evening. Keep illuminating our hearts to your truth, to your ministry. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for hedging us. Thank you for being God and knowing that we aren't fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. And we're fighting in victory. That's who we are because of what you've done. So continue to draw us to this truth. We ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said. Amen. Amen. Amen.